0: Thanks, Ben, and good morning. Uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're grateful that you are joining us today, whether Hiawatha is your home church, whether you're a visitor, maybe you're just here for the very first time. Uh, thank you for being here. We are, we're glad that you are joining us. Right now, we are wrapping up a sermon series in the Gospel of John, and people joked with me after first service, you've been saying wrapping up a go- the, the sermon series for a long time. We got at least another month Uh, But we're near the very end. There's just like one page left that we got to go through. But we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote his account of Jesus' ministry, his miracles, his signs, his death, and resurrection. And that's where we're at in the story right now, Jesus' resurrection. And today in our uh, passage, John is going to kind of take a step back, and basically he's going to say, this is why I wrote this account. So at this time when John's writing this, uh, there are three other gospel accounts already written, Matthew, Mark and Luke, if you're familiar with that. And so John is uh, saying, "This is why I'm writing my account, uh, what I saw, what I experienced, uh, why I picked certain details, and he's going to tell us the point of his book. And here's, before we get to it, his response, he's going to say, uh, his, his summary, the point of the Gospel of John is actually the same thing as the, impo- the point. Of the entire Bible, so to understand what John is going to say, we first have to unpack what the Bible is. And so, if you're brand new to the faith, or maybe you know very little or even nothing about the Christian faith, uh, Christians truly believe that this is God's word. That God, uh, through the power of His Spirit, spoke through and and uh, yeah, spoke through different authors and characters, and they wrote down uh, exactly what He wanted them to write down, though in their own Uh, setting with their own personalities etc but we truly believe that this is god's word that he wants to speak to us he doesn't want to be a god that's distant or unknowable but he wants to speak to us the bible is also the the best-selling book of all time which maybe that's surprising to you maybe not they uh estimate because they give away so many bibles they can't um we don't know how many have been sold probably about four billion have been sold but uh, many people give away Bibles and ministries as well. So there's probably somewhere between 5 and 7 billion copies of the Bible that have been printed. So very important book. Yet, uh, if we're honest, many of us might say, but it's pretty confusing. Or like if we just kind of look at it like, man, that is that is a long book. That's like longer than Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. This is like a big book, kind of hard to understand. And so... Uh, we're going to fly through the point of the Bible because that is the exact same thing that John's going to do in our passage here today. And so the Bible, if we just simplified it into one sentence, it's very much simplified, but the Bible is one unified story, the story of God's salvation through his son, the Messiah. The Bible is one unified story of God's salvation through his son, the Messiah. Messiah. And this story is set up and described and told in uh, many different ways. So if you don't know much about the Bible, this book is actually a, a compilation of 66 other books. And those 66 other books are written in seven different genres. They're written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three continents, yet all telling one unified same story. The story of God's salvation through his son, the Messiah. Now, if you know much about the Bible, maybe this doesn't surprise you as much. Um, And if that's the case, to kind of just put it in different terms for us. It would be, the Bible is similar to if uh, we had dozens of authors telling the same story. So it would be like Sun Tzu, Julius Caesar, Plato, Josephus, Shakespeare, The Diary of an African King, Jane Austen, an instruction manual for a medieval castle, letters to the editor from a 1750s Spanish newspaper, Edgar Allan Poe, Homer, together with the Iliad, not the not the Simpsons, uh, Langston Hughes, news from a New York Times reporter, an email written from a guru to his followers, J.K. Rowling, Ernest Hemingway, and a prediction of the end of the world by some guru, all telling the exact same story. It's just, it's just nuts to think about. Un- unbelievable to think about. In the Bible, although it has one unified message, that message, that story, plays out in four distinct acts. So the first act is the act of creation. God creates. He creates everything out of nothing, everything we know. He creates, and it is good. It is beautiful. It is uh, fantastic and great. And God looks at it. He calls it good. Humanity as the pinnacle of God's creation, as image bearers of the creator, God has perfect relationship with God. They, they live together. They're unified. Yet, the second act comes, uh, just in chapter three. So just a few uh, verses into the whole Bible, the second act comes. Humanity rebels against God. We turn our back on him and the, what theologians call the fall. Humanity's fall from paradise, from perfect relationship with God, And at that point, from Genesis 3 all the way into what we just read in John, the second act is called the fall. So, so sin and death and brokenness and violence and hatred and chaos reigns. Death reigns in the second act. And then Jesus comes in the third act with redemption. And then we end with new creation when Jesus comes a second time to fully defeat all of our enemies, and to redeem and restore creation. And we'll get to that later on in the sermon. But the second act is where we find ourselves. The second act of the biblical story is like three-fourths of your Bible. So it's like, you know, that much of our Bible here. And in that second act, it's long. And the big question that just hangs over the majority of the first two-thirds of the Bible is, how? How will God rescue us from our great enemies? How will God rescue us from sin? This poison that's within our hearts that that makes us enslaved to only love ourselves and to only be prideful and selfish. How will God rescue us from death? Right? In the first act, death did not reign. Immortality was the norm. Yet, when we rebelled against God, who is himself life, death came into the world. And now every single human being, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're wise or foolish, Whatever your background, your ethnicity, your national origin, your gender, uh, your education level, everyone is running towards death. Death reigns and rules. And finally, the, the whole Bible story is asking this question, how will God reunite himself with humanity? From the very beginning, when the fall happens, when sin enters the world, God promises, this will not always be so. I will fix this. I will be back with you again. And so from Genesis 3 all the way through the beginning parts of the Gospels in the New Testament, this question hangs over. How will God rescue humanity from sin and death? And how will he reunite with his people? So remember that. We're going to hit on that big problem of all of humanity and of all of the Bible. We're going to hit on this throughout the sermon today. So like I said, from the very beginning, within just moments after humanity rebels against God, God steps in and promises, this will not always be so. I will defeat your enemies. I will reunite myself with you, humanity. But it's going to take a long time. And so as we go throughout the biblical story, I'm going to give you, you know, 800 pages of the Bible in about two minutes to help us see these same patterns. We're going to see God makes a promise to humanity and humanity fails. God pursues them in love, and humanity's response is selfishness, rebellion, and to run away from him. So, at the very beginning of the Bible, just a few chapters after sin enters into the world and death begins to reign, God just finds a guy, a guy who's not worshiping him, a guy that's in a far off land, and he just picks him and he says, Abram, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to make a promise to you that you are going to be. Uh, You don't have any kids now, but you, your descendants, are going to be numerous. And through your family, all the nations, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. So God makes a great promise to use this one particular family to bless the world. Yet, very soon, this family gets enslaved in Egypt. And so then God rescues them from slavery. God steps in. He makes another promise to the same people. And he gives them the law, the, the, the rules that can kind of... Kind of help them be in relationship with them again. Kind of help them begin to live full lives now. Kind of fix these problems that are around them. He says that I will be your God and I'll actually live among you. I'll have a physical presence among you uh, in this place called the tabernacle, which was this tent and God's presence was housed on the inside. But within just moments of God saying, I'll make you another promise. This is what I'm going to do Humanity rebels. They worship a false god. They break the laws and they don't enter into this land that God has given them. So as the story continues, then God gives them kings and he even makes another promise. As they enter the land, he gives them kings and he makes another promise that one day there will be another king, a future king, a king whose rule will never end and he will rule like God. He will rule with justice and with love and with perfection. He'll be powerful and perfect and his reign will go on forever. Yet just moments, just pages after God makes this great promise, the kings begin to suck big time. They're all horrible, horrible people, and they lead God's people actually away from God. So the kings aren't the solution. So God then sends prophets. He speaks through people that tell God's people, turn back to Yahweh, turn back to life instead of death, he loves us. He's made promises to us. He's a faith. He's like a faithful spouse to us. Turn back, yet no one listened to the prophets. And eventually, uh, God's people, their nation, gets destroyed. Their temple gets destroyed. They are no longer a nation or a people group. They get carried off into exile, and all hope seems completely lost. Sin and death rule and reign. There's no hope for being reconciled to God. No help for God living among his people. The people are beyond hopeless. And they are apathetic to their destruction and plight and distance from God. Yet even in this point, God speaks through his Holy Spirit, through the prophets, promising that all of his promises he made will come true. That he has not given up on humanity yet. Though they had broken their end of the promise, Constantly, God would not break his vow. And God spoke through the prophets about a future hope. He'd send a rescuer in the form of a Messiah, an anointed one, this eternal king that he had promised. And this Messiah would defeat humanity's enemies of sin and death, and he would fix the problem of us being separated from God. One of the great prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, prophesies about this coming Messiah. And he says this, speaking of the Messiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, or upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, fast forward a few hundred years past this prophecy And we begin, or we set the stage for the beginning of John. The people somehow get back to their land and they kind of rebuild, or they do rebuild the temple. Yet they are being ruled by Rome and they're very much oppressed by others. And so in some ways, things are getting a little bit better. Some ways God is living amongst them because the temple is there. Yet there's so many laws So many rituals, so many walls and courts and curtains and barriers, keeping a holy, perfect, sinless, promise-keeping God away from unfaithful, foolish, self-focused, mortal humans. We actually see that through all of human history, whether you read the Bible or whether you study uh, just history in general. When our destiny is up to us, When success is up to us, humanity fails. We lose, we rebel, we die. So there needed to be something different in the story. A change needed to happen. We needed a rescuer and a remedy that was outside of ourselves. Because every time humanity tried to fix the problem, we failed. And so that's what sets up the beginning of the Gospel of John. And as John wraps up this book, he gives this break in the narrative. So, so far in John, if you haven't been here, it's been story, 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 story about Jesus. Today, he kind of steps back, and for two verses, he says, this is why I wrote this. This is the point. This is why I told you these specific miracles, these specific signs, these specific teachings of Jesus, because I have a point. And that point is the point of the entire Bible. And so in that summary, John helps us see that this problem, Jesus is the answer the problem humanity had been waiting for for thousands of years, the problem that they could never ever fix on their own, has finally come. The answer is Jesus. The remedy is Jesus. The hope for humanity's greatest problems being fixed, sin and death being removed, and separation from God being removed will come through Jesus. So that's the title of our sermon here today. We're going to see how John makes it very clear, helps us to see that Jesus is both the Son of God and Messiah. <clears throat> Excuse me, and Messiah. If you want to follow along, the passage will be on the screen. Uh, also, you could uh, look at it in your Bibles or on your phones. Very short passage, only uh, two verses here today. So let's read. So John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John starts off by saying, Jesus did not just perform these eight signs that I very clearly laid out in uh, my book here. He says he did a ton of other signs, a ton of other uh, miracles, and so he's uh, affirming the truth of the other Gospels. He's saying, I'm not trying to compete with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm not saying what they wrote is wrong. I just picked eight for a reason. The, the teachings of Jesus that I highlighted, I was doing for a reason. And that reason is, I want you to believe everything before John 20. These are written so that, the goal is, the point is, so that you may believe Believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he really is the Son of God. And because of that, out of that, through that trust in Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, you will have life. So let's first start with that first phrase. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So you might be wondering, okay, who who is this Messiah? You've been using this word a lot and I'm not quite sure what you are saying. This term Messiah uh, basically, just means the anointed one. So, remember all those promises God made about a, a king who would reign like God, powerfully, with great justice and with great love. That guy is the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, and it's a title that kind of culminates a bunch of different promises that were all throughout the New, or sorry, were all throughout the Old Testament of this coming figure that would be a teacher and a leader, and even a king and a savior. And the word Christ is just a Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Jesus is Messiah. So John, he has focused his writing to help, first of all, the early Jews who are uh, hearing about Christianity and about this Jesus, the early Jews who are reading uh, John's letter, especially, he's writing to convince them that Jesus is that Messiah that they have been waiting for for literally forever since humanity began. And he includes his specific signs and his specific teachings to help the readers and us to see that Jesus truly is the Messiah and God. So let's first look at this one, Jesus being the Messiah. If you remember at the very beginning of John, and most or many of you were there for the beginning of John, it starts by John introducing us to another guy named John, but he makes it very clear. This other guy, John, he was nuts. He lived in the wilderness. He did very crazy things. He ate insects, and uh, he was baptizing people. So this character we meet at the very beginning is this guy named John the Baptizer because he's re- preaching that uh, people would repent and would uh, believe, and, um, and he's baptizing people. And a lot of people wonder because of his uh, authority in preaching and this huge crowd, something new is coming he's like a prophet or is a prophet people are wondering john baptizer are are you the messiah we're wondering because you're doing just wild things and we're wondering we've been waiting are you the messiah and john's very clear he says no i'm not the messiah my job is to prepare the way for the true messiah my job is to just set the stage because the messiah is almost here and then john the baptizer describes When Jesus shows up, Jesus shows up and he says, baptize me. And John the baptizer says, after he baptizes Jesus, Jesus was anointed. But he wasn't just anointed by a prophet or by a king, but he was anointed by God himself. And he wasn't anointed with oil, but rather Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one who is anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. And this is what God the Father does to Jesus as Jesus begins his public ministry. He anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And John the baptizer's response is, I have seen and I testify. I promise. Everyone who wants to listen to me, I'm not the Messiah. But Jesus is the chosen one. That is John the baptizer's great conclusion. Jesus is God's chosen one. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. But it's not just here in John nor is it from John the Baptizer's uh, own words. We actually see Jesus himself say that he is the Messiah. If we look at a different gospel account in the gospel of Luke, we see this happen. In Luke 4, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is the same prophecy we just read about that Isaiah gave about the Messiah. Jesus finds this in the scrolls and reads it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he, then Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture was fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus tells this group of, of Jewish people in this religious setting in the synagogue, he says, this is me. This prophecy written about the coming Messiah, this is me. This has just been fulfilled in front of you. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And i am sent by God on a mission. Now as, as you're reading this, this prophecy about the Messiah, you, you may be thinking, um, I don't remember in John when Jesus did these things. Was that just in Luke or what's going on here? Maybe you've read all the gospel accounts and you're like, well, I know Jesus like, hung out with poor people and preached to them. I, I know he did heal some blind people, but if this is what the Messiah is going to do, um, I don't remember Jesus doing all of this stuff. So notice that Jesus didn't do all of this physically, but rather he did it spiritually and in an ultimate type way, which shows us the type of Messiah Jesus was going to be. He was not just going to be a physical Messiah that would come in as a physical king and remove Israel's physical enemies, nor was he just going to only heal a few blind people and a few lame people and help a few poor people become a little less poor, but rather Jesus' mission as Messiah was to be someone who would bring not just physical, but spiritual and eternal life and victory. Jesus came not just for a few, but he came for all. As we saw in John's verses just uh, just a few moments ago, all who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah will have life, not just the Jews, not just the religious people, Not just those who figured it out or those that Jesus literally spoke to in person, but all who believe. And so in Jesus' ministry, as Jesus came as Messiah, this is the type of Messiah he was. He fulfills these prophecies yet on an eternal and spiritual way, not just in a physical way. So in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, sin and death are defeated. The physically poor, and especially the spiritually poor, are preached to and liberated. Those who are imprisoned by and enslaved to sin receive freedom and liberation from Jesus Messiah. Those who are blind spiritually are miraculously healed as they believe and receive Christ's good news. Those who are oppressed by not just Rome, but oppressed by the power of death and sin and separation from their creator are now set free and given new life, an eternal life, and now are no longer distant and separated from God, but now are close to him and have his favor. So John helps us see who Jesus is, what type of king, what type of Christ and Messiah Jesus is. But not only that, John also wants to make it clear that the type of Messiah Jesus is, is also divine. That Jesus is also divine the Son of God. The Messiah is not human only because, like we've said, every single human continues to fail. It's never happened in human history. And so our Messiah also needed to be God. And if you remember, this is also the way that John starts. If you remember the very beginning of John, John also there makes it a big point to say, Jesus is not just a new prophet, he's not just a great guy, a new rabbi, but he is God in flesh, the very beginning of John, we read, speaking of Jesus, the word, uh, the word of God became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the eternal reality, reality creating Word of God, is the second person of the Trinity. The eternal Son of God left his throne and home and became human and lived among us he this word uh that um and at the beginning of the verse here the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us that that phrase made his dwelling among us is the same word in the old testament for tabernacle so we could read this uh the word became flesh jesus added flesh to himself and he tabernacled among us there's whispers god's coming back He's going to live among his people again. I don't know how it's going to happen, but John is helping us to make that connection. God himself is stepping into the world and fixing our greatest problems of being separated from him. He chooses to enter into the world, not as a judge or as a king, but as a servant. And even though humanity is poisoned by sin and rebellion in every way possible, he is moving towards us in grace. Now this doctrine, the doctrine of Jesus becoming man, it's called the incarnation, big long theological word. If you speak Latin or, or Spanish, the word carne means meat or flesh, so incarnation, Jesus is adding flesh. He's adding humanity to his divinity. If this doctrine is confusing for you, um, may, maybe as I'm describing this, you're kind of feeling like Michael Scott when he uh, gets the budget explained to him and he says, okay, well, um, can you explain it to me like I'm an eight-year-old? Maybe you feel like that. If, if you feel like that, you are not alone. Jesus' divinity and humanity, uh, how do those two things work together, has been a head-scratcher ever since uh, Jesus walked on this earth. So you, so you are not alone in having a hard time understanding what exactly this means. So let me kind of zoom back, give you like a great definition, and then we're going to give you like a really simple one. Uh, and hopefully between the two, this will be kind of helpful. So here at Hiawatha, our pastor, our elder, statement of faith says this. So lots of theological words um, that hopefully clarify. Let me read this for you. Uh, We believe that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his eternal son as Jesus the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that when the eternal son became flesh, he took on a fully human nature so that two Whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without confusion or mixture. Thus, the person Jesus Christ was and is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man. So, very long paragraph. Lots of good stuff in there. A couple things to make sure to hit on: one, Jesus is eternal, so he eternally existed as. The Son of God. He was not created. He was not created when he was born, but rather Jesus, well, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existed and then entered into the world as Jesus of Nazareth through his birth with the Virgin Mary. So Jesus has always existed. Another big thing to hit on here, which is important, is that Jesus had two natures. When he became human, he did not stop being fully God, but he stayed fully God and he added humanity to his divinity, So in some mystical, unbelievable type way, those two natures, humanity and divinity, were inseparably joined together as one person. So Jesus is not two people, a divine and a human, nor uh, was he created at a certain time, but he eternally existed and he added humanity to his divinity. So simply, the person, Jesus Christ, one person, Jesus Christ, was and is truly God, and truly man or if you're a math person 100% god plus 100% man equals 100% don't know how that works but that's that's the math behind it so for thousands of years again whether you read history or whether you're a student of the bible for thousands of years for all of humanity's history every single human father every single human tribe leader every single human judge Every single human advisor and priest and mediator and king and prophet who tried to solve humanity's problems failed. So God, in his great love love for us, he became the solution himself. The second member of the Trinity became human, and he became the Messiah. And that is the priceless truth John and the entire Bible are declaring to us. We could never fix our problem. So God had to do it for us. So God became the man, Jesus Christ, to be our solution and Savior as Messiah. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her uh, great book that helps describe what we've been talking about all morning, writes about that, the point of the whole Bible and the point of John. The Bible isn't a, bo- uh, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. You and me. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. You and me. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of this story, there is a man. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And This is what John is masterfully doing in his gospel account. Jesus is the point. Jesus is what we're looking for. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. And by believing in him as Messiah and God, we finally will have life. Death finally will stop ruling. We will stop being slaves to evil and violence and hatred and pride. And we can finally, finally be reunited with our creator in paradise. John's goal and the Spirit's goal through the author John is that we know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Messiah and that a fruit of that, or when we believe, we will then receive life in his name and that's what john's been doing the first 20 chapters he's been setting the stage helping us to understand what does life in jesus look like what does salvation look like in jesus and he hits on two things if we kind of categorize them first is abundant life now faith in jesus looks like we move from death to life right now In these exact bodies. Jesus said that back in John 10 when he taught about himself being the good shepherd. He said, I have come so that they may have life and full life. Life to the full. Abundant life. So trusting in Jesus brings full life right now, but it also brings life for forever. Jesus did not just come so the next few decades of your life will be a little bit better and a little bit happier, but also... He came in an even greater way to give us eternal life with him. We read that back in John 3. He said, Jesus said, For God loved the world in in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so here John is helping us see that the solution to humanity's problems come through Jesus Christ, Son of God. And so our big problems of being enslaved to sin and death always ruling over all of us and being separated from God, those we cannot run from, and no human has ever fixed that problem. We're enslaved to sin, meaning we cannot help but sin. We can try really hard to stop having racist thoughts and stop hating others and stop having pride in all of our actions and stop having evil pour out of our hearts onto our lips and tongues. We're we're enslaved to it. We must do it. We cannot help but do it. We've been talking about death rules over all of us. There's no person ever who has escaped death except for Christ. And then finally, separation from God. So our great problems, humanity's great problems and enemies are fixed in Jesus Christ. And so now in life through Jesus' name, We go from being enslaved to sin to now having victory in Christ. If you are in Christ now, if you've trusted in him, you no longer have to sin. You still probably will. You still probably will even today. Yet you no longer are enslaved to do so. There actually is victory. There's power over having to run back to that porn addiction or to being a hateful person or to have selfish thoughts or to be a violent person. Whatever the many sins that we all struggle with, in Christ we actually can have victory over that sin. Additionally, death loses. Unless Jesus comes back, we'll all taste death, yet the power of death, the sting of death, the terror and despair of death for Christians no longer reigns over us. It still hurts, we still weep, we still grieve, yet death loses its power over us through death. Messiah and Savior Jesus through life in his name. And then we also are reunited with God. In this life, we're reunited because Jesus says he places his spirit within us if we believe. So God lives within us. Additionally, God calls his church, his people, and he calls it his bride, and he calls it his body. So in a very real yet mystical way, we're connected and reunited to God by just being around the church. But not only do we receive the solution to all of our problems in this life right now, but also in eternity. In eternity, in our new resurrected bodies, in the new heaven, the new earth, we will have full victory in Christ. All of sin will be defeated. No evil will be in our hearts or our minds. Death will fully lose. Death will be just evaporated. It will be gone. It will be non-existent and every effect of death will be gone. I was just talking and praying with one of our members here who's going through severe, chronic pain. And we just talked about the older we get, the greater news this is as our bodies just fall apart, as we can't defeat aging or defeat pain or defeat disease. And so in the new heaven and the new earth and resurrected bodies, Jesus fully brings in all three of those things in the right. We have life in his name, both abundant life now and physical and spiritual life for eternity. Now, the physical life, we maybe understand that a little bit better because it's our reality right now. But what does this eternal life look like? It's kind of hard to understand. We see uh, symbolic language here in John and other places in the New Testament that begin to help us see what does eternal victory in Christ, death eternally losing, what is being reunited with God physically forever, what does that look like? It's kind of, hard to picture and hard to understand, so practically, you know, a a few things the Bible does teach us about that. First, we know right now, Jesus is ruling in heaven. In our story, we haven't quite got to it yet. Very soon, Jesus will ascend and and go back to be with the Father in heaven, and he'll rule and reign, which is what, what he's doing currently. Those who have trusted in Jesus, the dead in Christ, are with him now in heaven. Yet, heaven is just the intermission before our eternity with God in a resurrected and restored earth. Hip-hop uh, artist and author KB Kevin Burgess writes about this. He says, You are not made for heaven. You are made for earth. Heaven now is an intermediary place before the second coming of Jesus. But in the end, our ultimate home is a new earth where we will live as glorified humans. Being human is good because not only did God make humans, but God or but Jesus became a human and is still a human to this day. He was resurrected in a body, and all of his humanity is his forever. As such, his very being underscores the goodness of creation. Actually, this same author, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote actually more books of the Bible. Go read 1 John, he just repeats all this great news, I have like a dozen First John passages that fit perfectly with today's sermon. So, uh, but for time's sake, we're not going to get there. But John also wrote the very last book of the Bible. So this same guy who wrote John at the very end of his life, he gets a vision and he writes that vision down. He's told uh, by the angels to, to write down what he sees. And in it, John gets symbolic yet beautiful and powerful pictures of what this will all look like in the future. So John writes in the very last book of the Bible what this new physical and eternal life will look like. The full and final great reversal of all of our despair and enemies. What eternal life and God living among his people and death and sin being gone, what that will look like. Revelation 21, the second to the last chapter of the Bible gives us this picture. John writing, he says, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. Or that word new can just be translated a restored or a redeemed or a recreated new heaven and earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That, my friends, that, that is the happy ending of the story. It's the true happy ending of humanity's story. An even better ending than we could ever hope for or dream or write ourselves. And it's offered to anyone. John's words are to everyone in this room here today. All of the Bible, including the Gospel of John, is written so that you and I would believe that Jesus was not just a guru or a prophet or a, ma, or a um, rabbi or a great man, but that he was the Messiah, the divine Messiah, the Son of God. And through belief in him, you might have life in his name. Life right now, victorious life, life connected to God, life with hope, life where death does not lead you to despair and hopelessness, and also eternal life, where all those enemies are fully defeated. And it's offered to anyone, anyone, regardless of your background, regardless of how good or bad you think you are, regardless of how smart or foolish or unwise you think you are, regardless of what's been done to you or what you've done, this invitation truly is for anyone. For anyone to trust in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God and that by believing in him we might have life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great love for us that from eternity past this was your plan. Your plan to not leave us in our sin, not leave us crushed by the future of death, not leave us uh, alone and apart from you, but that you loved us Your plan was to send your son into this world. You fulfilled all your promises to us. You are the faithful spouse. You are the true God that did not give up on us. As humanity failed again and again and again to rescue ourselves, you stepped into this world, became like us, so that all we have to do is look to you, to trust in you and your work on our behalf, and we will receive life. So God, we need your help to believe. Our natural inclination is disbelief and pride and self-righteousness and to run away from you. So change our hearts. Help us to believe. And we thank you for this life. We thank you that we have whispers of it. We have great first fruits of it right now in this life, that we don't have to live full of despair and hopelessness, but we have hope and faith and joy and love right now. And we thank you uh, for eternity. We pray, Jesus, come back soon. Come, Lord Jesus, soon. And we pray in the meantime that you would give us faith and help us to believe. We thank you and pray this in the Messiah and the Son of God's name. Amen.